0: this is cat and a cat i think and a cat can you hear <laughs> him purring yes <laughs> <laughs> and this is phoebe and i know that phoebe is also a type of bird but there's no phoebe bird um sitting with me here we are feminine chaos thank you for joining us and yeah. our various I'm, animals yes i am actually i'm basically buried in pets right now
1: it's uh, it's a fun and exciting moment here um So we are talking, by popular demand today, about a topic that has seized the imagination of uh, the internet, of Twitter, of the culture at large. We're talking about YA fiction.
0: Mm -hmm. The young adults and the stories they read or that are written ostensibly for them.
1: Yes. Um, so I am going to try, we, we took user submitted, um,
0: user submitted, uh,
1: <laughs> ge, ge, general public <laughs> submitted questions. We took um, AI
0: submitted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. We plugged 10,000 YA novels into a neural net and asked it to write one. Um, no, that's, that's a joke. That's a pandemic meme specific joke. Um, <laughs> But we, we did take questions from Twitter and from our Patreon subscribers on this topic. It turns out people really, really want to know a lot about this. And um, one of the things that was asked kind of off the bat was, what the hell is going on right now? Which um, would take me like probably five or six hours to answer like in a thorough way but um the reason that ya is in the news right now is that there was this uh big drama which you may have caught wind of because um, some of the viral threads that it spawned ended up kind of leaking out into the mainstream internet and even into like Reddit copy pasta um, because of the disgusting worms thread that we've discussed uh, on a previous podcast with Jessica Crispin. So I'm going to do my best to sum this up. What you Go need to it. know is that young adult fiction was an early front in the culture wars about problematic books problematic authors um there's been a movement since about 2014 to diversify books in and and the people writing them and the stories being told in that space that sort of uh degraded into a overall sort of call out culture with people trying to get authors canceled for writing books that were insensitive. You have the rise of sensitivity readers in this space trying to keep authors from writing, quote, inauthentically about communities they don't belong to. Uh, There's been a big push for own voices literature, which is uh, the idea basically that you shouldn't write outside your own identity categories because you'll be inauthentic at best and offensive at worst. And um, against this entire landscape, there was a beef that erupted between an author named Jess Clues and an educator named Lorena Herman, who uh, Herman is um, responsible for this Disrupt Texts initiative that aims to contextualize the classics or sort of push them out of the off of reading lists, like assigned reading lists in schools, entirely. The idea. Wait, can I just interrupt? That- so those
0: seem like two very different things. To contextualize seems good. To uh, remove from reading lists seems bad, if I may. Well, um- to the
1: contextualization it takes the form of. Oh God, I'm having to, I'm having trouble articulating this. So, in in this context contextualization means that you read the classic novel, but you also read a YA novel. <laughs> um, and not by you, I mean the children. I see. You know, read I see. a YA novel that allows them to better connect with the material. The idea is partially that modern kids can't connect with the classics because they're not relevant enough oh. to their lives this i think we both disagree with this profoundly oh, okay um, so
0: this is just very frustrating and um i just i used to feel like this a little bit um even though when i look back to the things i read in high school I read, like, I always thought of myself as somebody who's just, like, never reads anything and just watches, like, garbage television. But when I think back, like, I did read quite a few books that are actually, like, you know, sort of considered serious literature in retrospect. But then when I got to college, I remember thinking, like, oh, I'm just this idiot. Other people have read so much more than me. And then we would be, like, so I went to the University of Chicago, which um, either has or at least at that point had a sort of real great books emphasis. And I would learned that these are just, texts if you can read English you can read these texts you can interpret them it's just words you can make sense of it you know and it was incredibly not to use this sort of trite word but it was empowering and you know words are just words like most things are not actually you know Ulysses or Judith Butler or whatever you know most things are pretty you know accessible once you're at a certain reading level and like um yeah, I don't know. The idea that something being from I guess what I'm saying is the idea that something being not specifically handcrafted for you personally in your exact location in time and your age and whatever like the idea that I mean part of thinking is being able to just kind of deal with a text that wasn't that that wouldn't have in a million years known you would be the one reading it. Right. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I just <laughs> find it's very like aggravating that this is a way people would think about reading. But
1: yeah, yeah. I mean I, I I find it like on top of everything else, a kind of a bleak view of humanity at large because the whole thing about about texts is that they provide a window into another time, another life, another experience that ultimately people generally do connect with anyway because there's this common humanity at work,
0: and I think. But you that's can't speak important. about common humanity. That's not allowed. That's not allowed. I Even can, and no. I will. Oh, I, not, a, not on I, this <laughs> podcast. There's no common humanity. We are each of us, all of us, species is unto ourselves. So please. Yeah, I'm finish. a cat, you your
1: bird. Your...
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the beef, the beef, the beef. Sorry, where is this beef?
1: All right. So, um, right. So, in context. There's this idea that you're going to read these YA novels in, and um, and better relate to the classics because you had a YA novel alongside it that was somehow anyway, and this is what this um, educator
0: has been advocating for,
1: right? But she also advocates for just not including canon texts at all because and this was and this was the tweet um, that she wrote that was <clears throat> that spawned the backlash that resulted in the cancellation. It's like, you know, swallowed the spider to get the fly. Um, So she wrote that, (laughs) actually it was, this tweet took the form of a question. It was like, did you know how many classics or that most of the classics were
0: written before 1950? Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. What? (laughs) Most (laughs) of the classics were written before 1950? Now, is the is the fire big enough to put all of those onto the bonfire for these? Because that sounds like a lot of books, all the ones from before 1950.
1: So, okay, I'm going to actually read this tweet aloud because it is it you know it's important because we're talking about the reaction to it. Um, We're talking about an angry reaction to it, and I think it's worth you know having the source material. So, this tweet. This is Lorena Herman. Did y'all know that many of the classics were written before the 50s? Think of US I'm sorry, society before
0: then. Should I mute myself so I don't laugh each time? No, just hold, hold your breath.
1: <laughs> so, think of US society before then and the values that shaped this nation afterwards. That is what is in those books. That is why we got to switch it up. It ain't just about being old. Hashtag disrupt texts. So, this is, as you might surmise, an argument, not just for contextualizing these books or reading them alongside something more contemporary, but for basically removing them from reading lists or, or um, you know, encouraging kids not to read them because they have these problematic pre nineteen fifties values baked in. And the author Jess Clues, who responded to this, um. Was basically coming down on the side of no. The classics are valuable, and this is a really stupid take. Well,
0: can I just say something quickly about the the take itself before we talk about the response it got? Because I think yes. this has a broader. Um, I was going to say implication, application, some both outside of YA as well, where I think there is a sort of cultural criticism idea more generally that anything from any time other than right the second is bad capital B bad you know the whole thing needs a disclaimer needs a trigger warning because it's simply because it's old and because it's because the language used the outfits worn whatever is not of right the second the way things were talked about isn't right as as things are right now therefore it's worse and i have a huge problem with this because i don't think that i don't believe just sort of like In abstract terms, whatever, that there is in this notion of like linear progress. And it doesn't make any sense that, you know, and it's also the very same people who say that our times are worse than any times ever before, say that unless something was created like within the last five minutes, it's too problematic. Yeah, that's
1: a paradox, isn't it? (laughs) It's just so
0: like, I don't know, I guess this just aside from the specific literary value of books from before 1950, which is also, you know, a worthy topic in its own right, I just think this like this question of like, like, let's just talk about that for a second. Like, is that even true? Were things unequivocally worse in always, you know, any year prior to this year? Is this like, is, is 2020 like the peak? Is this as good as it gets? Like, I don't know. Is it like, I'm not totally sure about that. It seems just like. It seems like in terms of like income inequality, wealth inequality, that's gotten a lot worse, you know, in recent years. It just seems like a lot of things. Um, I think also of just like the expectation that women um, who are going to be on screen look magnificent, um, no matter the role, uh, no matter their age, whatever, look like beautiful teenagers, no matter, you know, like so many things have gotten objectively worse. That it just like I don't understand how people arrive there. But anyway, everybody seems to agree. Everybody apart from me seems to agree on this. So I, I am fighting I, I or, or, or us. <laughs> okay, then we are fighting a, a somewhat losing battle here. But anyway,
1: we're yeah, so together against the dying of the light. And by the light, we mean the right of aging actresses to actually have lines on their faces. <laughs> um, but we're digressing. So just to return to the the backlash to this thread, to this tweet rather, mainly took the form of a thread by Jessica Clues, who is a young adult fantasy author. She's published a number of books. They're um, pretty well reviewed. And she wrote if you think Hawthorne was on the side of the judgmental Puritans in the Scarlet letter, then you are an absolute idiot and should not have the title of educator in your Twitter bio. This begins at admittedly intemperate thread. She sounds really exasperated. Um, can't say I blame her. So th- I'm not going to read all of the tweets. Just um, some, some choice but, samples, maybe uh, uh, some choice samples so that we can get a taste. Um, This anti-intellectual, anti-curiosity bullshit is poison, and I will stand here and scream that it is sheer goddamn evil until my hair falls out. I do not care. If you think Upton Sinclair was on the side of the meatpacking industry, then (laughs) you are a fool and should sit down and feel bad about yourself. Ah, yes, that embodiment of brutal subjugation and toxic masculinity. Walden, sit and spin on a tack.
0: I was going to say, I remember something about a tack. Um, I remember it partly because... Very early on when we moved to Toronto, um, we had this very like sort of formal-ish lunch with one of my husband's colleagues. And the whole time we were sort of walking after the lunch, I felt something kind of like weird scratching my foot. And I assumed it was like a pebble in my shoe. And I didn't want to be like, hi, I'm going to remove a pebble from my shoe. And like somewhere like (laughs) I finally looked and there was like I had literally stepped on a tack and had been in like crappy canvas sneakers and had been walking with like a tack touching my foot oh so I, can, yeah. I feel like this very like visceral to me this tack
1: uh, that is um,
0: <laughs> I digress that's actually a horrible story it hadn't been like it hadn't like gone into my foot it felt just like a pebble it was like a tiny sensation right well was- a
1: tack has a short little
0: Mm-hmm. blade pointer or whatever it can only do on so it. much damage but it's irritating right,
1: through your canvas shoe so it would mm-hmm. have been like just the, just the tip
0: <laughs> just, <laughs> just the, tip. the tip wait so i was gonna say that this this thread kind of already gets to um one of our readers submitted questions about so um, i just want to i just oh,
1: want to um yeah i just want to keep going really quick um, okay, I'm gonna, okay. A couple more tweets from this thread. Okay. Remember how Louisa May Alcott wrote Little Women to Uphold the Patriarchy? If you do, stop taking drugs you hack. Okay. So I'm still – I just want to make clear that I'm still reading from Jessica Clue's thread. Um, she says, remember their eyes were watching God and other literature of the extraordinary Harlem Renaissance? I guess not Dick. I guess awakening Kate Chopin's early feminist work about the conflict a woman feels as she tries to step outside of society's stifling expectations was just something I made up one day while watching The Good Place. Um, Willa Cather, is she on Twitter?
0: (laughs) So what what was the fallout of this? What was the fallout of this? Because I want to then kind of like leap back to one of the reader questions that really, really like exactly gets at this. But so what happened?
1: Here's this intemperate thread. Unfortunately, because Jessica Clues is white and because Lorena Herman is Dominican, this thread became not just intemperate and caustic, but in the eyes of certain influential people within the YA community, it was racist because she mentioned sitting on a tack. It was, quote, violent. Um, Hmm. So Basically, everyone freaks out about this, quote unquote, racist, violent, vitriolic thread Um, and a campaign to cancel Jessica Clues kicks into high gear. People start tagging her um, publisher, her agent. They're like, do you see how your author is talking to a woman of color? This is disgusting. There needs to be consequences. And no more chickpea stew ever again. And no more chickpea to ever again. Uh, that's a t- deep cut, deep Alice and Roman cut. Um, Jessica Clues deleted her thread and wrote an apology. The apology, of course, garnered nothing but responses from the community complaining that it wasn't good enough. Um, apology not accepted. Her agent, Brooks Sherman, a man with whom I've had a couple run-ins myself in my attempts to report on the YA community, um, so, You know, just for the sake of full disclosure, I, I do not like this man, Um He originally posted a statement thanking everybody for alerting him. It's like, thank you for snitching on my client to me Um, and saying that, you know, that he held her accountable and, you know, that he appreciated that she had apologized and there was going to be an ongoing conversation. This, too, was declared not good enough uh, because Jessica, uh, Jessica Clues was still permitted to work Right. And so a couple of days later, Sherman posts a new statement saying that he's dropping her as a client and crucially declaring that her thread was, quote, racist and unacceptable. So now he's tarred her as a racist in addition to, you know, severing his relationship with her. So um, every time something like this happens in the YA community, it ends up, bleeding out into, it gets wider exposure because to everybody not in the community who doesn't play by the rules of this community, it looks frankly insane, you know, to say that just because this happened to be a white person tweeting critically about a black person's perspective, that that must be racist. Um, I, you know, I suppose for the record, I should say that I don't think it's racist to be critical or even caustic of somebody if even if they happen to be black that there needs to be a little bit more to it than that do you feel similarly or
0: i think that everybody should just only say nice things ever <laughs> and all hold hands <laughs> just <laughs> um yeah i don't even know where to begin with this i mean i think yes it was a very um you know i i feel like it, it's tricky. Like it, it was not a, it was not like a, you know, friendly thread, but I also find the initial like burn it all down from before 1950. So idiotic and um, just like harmful in so many ways that I could see, you know, I mean, people have different sort of tones on Twitter and like, you know, it's hard for me like leaping in to kind of see how, everybody in this world is normally talking, but I guess, yeah, I, I obviously I think people should be able to be critical of one another's ideas, regardless of background. Um, you know, I was mildly critical of the New York times columnist Charles blows tweet about, um, gender reveal parties. And he blocks me on Twitter. So I can't even be critical anymore. It's really sad. Um, I, I think that's allowed. I think, you know, I don't think you have to do, like, insert both parties into privilege checklist before deciding who's allowed to talk about whose ideas. I guess the part of this that jumps out at me the most, um, this comes back to that question that we got asked, is this, um, one of our listeners, readers, li- listeners, asked um, whether like about YA readers who confuse who, and this is from the question, confuse a character says X with author endorses X. Um, Mm -hmm. And this question goes on. um, Honestly, it's hard to take these at face value. Do you think they're sincere? And if so, what produces this? Um, So I think that that's really, really interesting. And also like, I say this as regular listeners know, as somebody who's not of the YA world, um, this also goes beyond YA, this question of like, if something is depicted. So I'm thinking of like an episode of Faulty Towers that I believe was removed from, but seems to have now been reinstated with some selective, um, not bleeping, it's like muting of certain words. Um, this episode of Faulty Towers, the 1970s uh, classic, Britcom with John Cleese, who's um, now problematic for all sorts of new reasons, but whatever. Um where basically there's, um, it's an episode that's about bigotry and is like anti-bigotry. And it depicts somebody in in one scene being quite bigoted, but clearly being an idiot. Mm-hmm. And this has been very fraught because of the language used and all of this. And it's like, and, and first the thing, as I said, like first there was a, a warning about it um, before the episode where it's streaming and then it was like the whole episode was gone. And now I think it's this warning again and the muting of the words and no like closed captioning of them or anything, you know, just nothing. And I guess I just wonder about like more generally, like this, the impossibility of depicting unpleasantness because it really does seem to come back to, I think people really do. I think people are taking, I think people are being sincere that, and I think this does get to the other part of that um, same listener question about um, that YA readers uh, about them claiming very extreme psychological reactions to Milk Toast depictions of bigotry. I think there is something where like, this is upsetting becomes like the only possible register. And there's no context of like, is this thing actually against bigotry, but depicting it because how can you be against bigotry without <laughs> depicting it? Like, Oh, I think there is something about that. And like the whole question of like Upton Sinclair and the meatpack, you know, like, this is it, you know, like, can you show things critically, if you're not allowed to show them at all, like you can't, you can't do anything you can't even this, this stifles social justice, actually, you know, so that's what's so nuts about this. Oh, Yeah, I mean,
1: it's, I mean, it's very much, you know, this question of can you? critique something especially in the framework of fiction without depicting it and i think the answer is no that's it's basically impossible um you know if you want to just write a polemic about how the bad thing is bad then that's not a story um and so but, that's you yeah. know that definitely makes it makes it complicated it also reminds me um just to really start going off on a tangent okay. i
0: hope it's going to be the I, thing that i'm thinking okay what it you, almost what is it? certainly is not okay
1: But um, a few years ago, Seth MacFarlane hosted the Oscars, and there was this bit that they did where he imagined that he had been tapped to host the Oscars and that he fulfilled everybody's worst fears about how inappropriate and terrible a Seth MacFarlane hosted Oscars would be. Um, And there's this, and they, they did this song in which he sings a song to all of the actresses in the audience called, we saw your boobs. Um, and it's just a roundup of every actress whose boobs <laughs> were seen on screen that year. And, or maybe ever. Um, and it's just like, you know, calling out these individual actresses. And then at one point, you know, the the punchline is, you know, that you've never seen Jennifer Lawrence's boobs at all. And there's a reaction shot of her in the audience, like kind of pumping her fist in victory. Um, anyway, this was, I mean, I thought it was pretty funny. But there was a lot of outrage about this song being performed at the Oscars, even though the entire point of the song was, imagine if we'd actually done this and how horrible it would have been. Like, let's all be glad that a Seth MacFarlane hosted Oscars was actually more classy than this satirical version we're presenting within the context of the show. Um, People were very upset because they still did the song. Mm-hmm. He still got to sing the song. So isn't that just
0: as bad as if oh. they'd done it genuinely? Okay, so now this is reminding me of two things that uh, that we've talked about. So one is the famous Washington Post Halloween costume dressing up as Megan... Was it Megan Kelly? Am I imagining this? Yeah, uh, yeah Megan Kelly in black. In blackface. Bla- Megan Kelly. So it's sort of like that, but it also like the sort of where it's like, it's a type of humor that I'm i just gonna say, I think it like, sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. I think, you know, making fun of, it, it's tricky, right? Like, making fun of bigotry with, you know, satire of bigotry is difficult, you know, and I think it's never gonna be like, an easy road, I guess. But the other thing that this reminds me of the most, and that I feel like we have to talk about in this context is Nanette. Because nanette as we well, oh, her name isn't nanette is it no 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 oh, hannah gadsby oh thank God. you thank do you we, okay do we definitely do we
1: really i don't want to relive no nanette. no i
0: just want to say that i think this is really important because nanette in, in nanette the monologue whatever um hannah gadsby's whole point is basically like comedy is too problematic let's not laugh laughing is bad we can only just sit here and talk about cis straight white men and and how bad they are. And that's all that's allowed to be. Right. Solemn. And she indicts her audience. She indicts her audience. Mm-hmm. She's like, and you, and you wanted up you wanted comedy. And therefore you are bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I feel like that's um, really the logical end point to this because yeah, satire of bigotry doesn't always work. You know, different types of comedy. It, it's comedy is not like I feel like the problem with Nanette and that sort of like pro humorlessness approach is that it in turn makes it feel can make people feel maybe like you have to say that all comedy that sort of pushes buttons is funny and i'm gonna say it isn't not everything's funny some things just kind of fall flat but at the same time um and i have something coming out about this like really really soon and we will maybe discuss it on a different installment but yeah basically i think this idea though that like anything that you laugh at is inherently like, you shouldn't laugh. It's never good to laugh. I feel like that is something that's kind of seeped into the culture and people loved Nanette, you know, like mainstream liberal commentary on it was like, this is brave and brilliant. And yeah, you know, like everything's been bad, burn it all down kind of mm-hmm. approach. And I think um, I think that that's really like, that's out there, you know, like you can't really, you can't, like, this idea that, that there'd be any value in anything unless it's, like, as a sort of vitamin-slash-think piece, Um, no, no, it's frustrating. But, yeah, I feel like Nanette is kind of, like, a touchstone for this, though, because that approach, like, that is what is being proposed. hmm
1: So I want to also return to... Um to the question that prompted our discussion here, because I also want to offer the sort of YA specific view on what's happening. Um, So the question again was that YA readers seem to frequently one claim extreme psychological reactions to milquetoast depictions of bigotry and confuse a character says X with author, author endorses X and that it's hard to take these at face value. Um, So, the sort of inside view on this and this actually speaks to another question that that we got a whole lot um is it's not readers really doing this it's mostly not um mm-hmm. it's adults you know ad- authors um the librarians are surprisingly overrepresented um in in the population that is taking part in these discussions and these draggings um book bloggers it's it's not young adults it's like not so young adults and then you know obviously when you're promoting the idea that it's traumatic to encounter descriptions of racism or it's traumatic to encounter tropes that could be interpreted as racist um like the teen readers in this community who are paying attention to these discussions, they're not idiots. Um, And if you demonstrate to them that claiming to be traumatized is going to net them a lot of positive and sympathetic attention, then of course there's going to be some who both, you know, gravitate towards claiming that they're traumatized because they want the attention that comes from that and there's also going to be a certain number who genuinely convince themselves because you've basically told them who they are and they're believing you you know i i was i was made uncomfortable by this book well that means that i was made unsafe it means that i experienced trauma so you will have some readers who engage in that um I, I remember seeing like this girl promoting on Twitter um her essay that she'd written about I don't remember the book, but it was I wanna talk about why this book hurt me, you know? And <laughs> people were taking it very seriously. Mm-hmm. They were congratulating her for being so brave. You know, you you create like a glow like that around something, and obviously mm. young people are gonna be attracted to it. But I, mean, I have a th- before- oh, Go on, go on, go on. Okay, just really quick. Go on. Um but as to as to whether it's sincere. This is where the adults come in, um, because it is worth noting that young adult, the online community, not not the, the literary genre, but the community that sprung up does attract a certain number of people who are pretty maladjusted, in some cases, pretty damaged and who are coping with that by projecting their own insecurities onto teen readers. Um, there are a lot of adults out there in this community who see themselves as trying to basically save the kid, like the unhappy ooh, kid that ooh. they used to does be. Does this
0: relate to the thing of, like, people made fun of my lunch in school, now I'm going to get a broth bar canceled?
1: Oh, hell yeah, it does. Okay. You know, it's this It's this idea of... If someone had just handed me the right book, a book that allowed me to see myself as like a hero and as valuable, then I would have had a better time when I was a kid. And so now I'm writing that book for all the kids who are like me. Um, is this actually how literature works or well, is it a form of magical thinking? I, mean, I, think, I think it's, it's a question. fine to
0: write the book you wish you'd had as a child. I don't see anything like that in and of itself is fine. I think the idea is...
1: And, and burn transition. down all the other ones. <laughs> yeah, it seems I'm trying to, to prevent
0: the publication yeah. of
1: the type of literature that harmed me as a child, mm-hmm. um, which I think is I, I don't think that people necessarily have the most realistic perspective on what books actually mm-hmm. did to them. Well, I think it's very yeah. unlikely. Um, but, you know, there's that. And then there's also this sense of self-importance, you know, like. Um, I, we talked about this on the on the podcast with Jessa Crispin. But, you know, starting around 2014, 2015, I did start noticing a lot of authors in the YA community. Um, you know, I was I had just published my second YA novel at the time, started to really see themselves as sort of moral guides um, moral guardians you know of their of their readers and they would talk at length about the immense responsibility that we had as authors of young adult fiction because if you got it wrong you would destroy these children you know mm-hmm. who were your readers
0: yeah so yeah thanks for letting me finish that long-winded oh, thought. no no I, I think that that's super interesting and i think that gets at why um ya has been kind of at the front lines of a lot of this because i don't think there's the same kind of like let art do its thing. Let the artist be a mad genius who, you know, is terrible in his or often, you know, personal life, whatever. I feel like because of this sort of like, because of the think of the children angle, you know, there's a little bit less of a kind of automatic pushback to that. But the other thing that this has been making me think of, um, this actually relates to something that I saw tweeted um, and I retweeted earlier, Here's the tweet. Okay. The tweet is it's weird being like, we should all put our race, pronouns, trauma history, and mental state in bio so I can decide if you're allowed you are allowed to say this or not. Panopticon, but make it intersectional. Okay. So I thought this tweet was really um it really got at something of what it made me think of. And I um treated my 10 Twitter followers to my many thoughts on this, but like This has been the thing with privilege awareness generally, but also specifically where it relates to young people and why I'm mentioning it now, college admissions essays, right? And once you're at college, but also like in high school, probably to some extent at this point, this notion of having to perform your trauma, perform the obstacles you've met, you have to be open, but you have to be kind of like savvily open because it's still a liability to actually... If you're still actively facing any sort of obstacle, that's a liability, you know, but it has to be kind of like, not, I don't want to keep using the word photogenic, but kind of maybe a photogenic liability or whatever, you know, it has to be something that's like, not photogenic, but like socially acceptable, you know, like if you have a really messy home life, but it's not easily classified into some sort of trauma category, or identity category, like you might just be weird, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's something that the reason I bring it up now is because I think that if you're applying to college, to any college where you have to do an essay, but even if you just have to tick boxes, but especially if you have to do an essay, and I should say that selective U.S. colleges are moving more towards essays because that's supposed to be more fair, like a personal essay, you're supposed to, (laughs) it's basically like a cover letter in which you show your your ascent despite obstacles. That's that's the literary exercise you're doing. And I think that young people are really being like pointed <laughs> towards that approach um, in, of thinking of themselves. It's not just that they're supposed to be thinking of themselves as victims, but they're sort of, it's this curated victimhood, you know, showcased <laughs> victimhood. And I think that there's something kind of upsetting about that because it also, I'm not oh, convinced yeah. that this even helps because if you actually are you know traumatized you're probably not able to like convey it as elegantly because you know at the end of the day a personal essay is still going to be judged on the basis of like does it have paragraphs does it make any sense um so yeah hey, the i person do who yeah. Can organize their trauma into mm-hmm. a compelling narrative aka somebody college, wrote it for them but
1: yeah yeah i mean it's I mean, still yeah. they're coming at it from from a certain from a certain perspective. So actually, I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned the college essay thing because it ties in, I think, really nicely to our next question, um, which is, what do you think the danger is of the nuttiness drifting into non-young adult literature? Um, So as Phoebe has just kind of aptly pointed out, the quote unquote nuttiness, um, you know, that drives what's happening in YA is also driving certain trends in, you know, in others, in other spheres entirely. Um, and is it drifting into other types of literature?
0: Yeah, I, you know, it absolutely is. Wasn't it's there something happened. with the Nobel Prize not being given in literature one year? And I do not remember why. It was something, oh God. something was problematic. Yeah. And I don't remember why.
1: I don't I'm sorry. remember, but what I, I was,
0: I, all I all I knew was that I had not won the Nobel Prize in Literature that year, and I was just devastating. Tune it out, you know. My tweets were yeah. just sitting there waiting to be plucked. You were robbed. Mm-hmm.
1: But what I thought of right away, of course, was American Dirt. That wasn't YA. Um, I. Right. But you have the same, you know, this the same kind of tone, um, this almost, you know, hysterical like. Shrieking about how the book causes harm to quote unquote marginalized people, and um, the overall fetishization of identity, and especially identity as it relates to trauma, that's very much a thing. Um, I mean, it it, and I think it depends what genre you're writing in. Um, you know, whether it's like crime or sci-fi or romance you might be seeing it more seeing it less depending but i mean i personally like just based on what i've what i've seen um in publishing and what i've i've heard from other writers and and people who are kind of inside the industry i would not want to be a straight white man trying to sell for instance a literary fiction um, what if your first name was
0: jonathan though it would probably be okay
1: Oh, (laughs) only if your last name is also Franzen. Mm, mm.
0: Am I allowed a digression about that? I once saw a picture of young Jonathan Franzen, and he was really nice looking. Was he dreamy? Really? Yeah. And I I like, I have read some of his novels, some I've liked more than others, but he was really nice looking as a young man. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say that. (laughs) So I think that in terms of the, the nuttiness, I do think that a lot of this does relate, um, to like, you see this in all sorts of, we've talked about like knitting and all of this, like all sorts of hobbyist groups, but also professional groups. And I think what's unique to the professional settings is really this question of scarcity and competition. And I think that that maybe would be like the opening for our next question, um, which I'm going to read is, do you think there's any connection between these blowups and the overall economic health of the publishing industry and bookstore market up to and including the Penguin, Simon and Schuster merger? Does the latter contribute to the former or vice versa, if at all? So I think this is super relevant. I don't know squat about (laughs) YA, but I think I know quite a bit about publishing itself in general. And I would say, I don't know anything specifically about bookstores other than that you know, I I like them, but um, I definitely think that everything has to, on some level has to do with the sense of like limited resources um, and the rarity of making even like a part of one's living from this type of writing or from any type of writing. Um, Yeah. I think that that probably has to do with it because I think you see this with like, this was not to, bring up Lena Dunham again but <laughs> you know you see this with the whole like the girls discourse um, like how does how do a few people make so much money in an industry where most people like if you're successful what that means is you teach writing and write and that's that's having made it you know
1: yeah yeah and what's interesting in YA is that that's really not so much a path for young adult fiction writers as it is, I think for, for writers of adult fiction. Um, You don't often see the person who's both a YA novelist and a college professor. Um, Instead. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, just anecdotally, it seems a little bit less common. Hmm. Um, Although I, I, maybe that's changing. I don't know. Um, But I'd be, especially like in the wake of peak YA, which happened, after Twilight.
0: Um, Do you think that's just genre and- in general, like anything other than literary fiction would be less likely to have a sort of MFA presence? I should say, I don't know anything about MFA programs. I've never even <laughs> thought about them beyond like reading that they exist, but yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, MFA programs tend to um, be a pipeline into either poetry or literary fiction. You see, you see, a certain number of YA writers have MFAs, but it's, I think it's rarer. I think it doesn't just, it tends not to attract that type of writer so much. Um, The other thing of course, is that like, there's something about the fact that so much of the, when you talk about power in the YA sphere, um, it's not necessarily like, money or professional success, that a lot of what drives, you know, the discussion is social capital. And that's sort of the, the other, arguably, maybe even bigger form of power that you can exercise in this particular sphere. So I don't know if there's something about sort of the lower the stakes, mm-hmm. the uglier the scrapping, um, or the uglier the discourse. Yeah, but overall, what you have you know across the board in publishing and and i think you know it it does create um a sort of a petri dish in in certain ways for this type of stuff to what happens in a petri dish ferment (laughs) um that you've got publishers increasingly working similarly to the way movie studios work where you've got your one big tentpole bestseller that's going to make a bajillion dollars and that you is going to be used to support all of the other work um that doesn't necessarily turn a profit but you need to have more than one mo- uh, movie or you need to have more, more than one book
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well this actually may segue into i, I see on our the way we've got the document this will be skipping one but just this question of like um why be on twitter at all and i think that like so this is the question is um if you are a ya author at this point why even have a twitter account surely people must know now that it is a toxic wasteland exclamation mark why not just avoid it altogether or open an anonymous account leave the craziest shouting into the void Um, Well, I have a thought on this, which is just a general publishing one, which is, unless you're truly huge, you sort of, you do, you're your own, you're your own main PR person. And I would assume that when people are on Twitter, it's because that's, um, it's, you kind of have to be, it's like, it's networking now, especially with like the, you know, people Being, you know, even if you're in New York where publishing is kind of centered, you're um, not out and about as much these days, but certainly if you're not, um, isn't that just kind of like where you have to be to be a working writer? Or is how much of an option? So you would know more than I would about this cat. If you're a YA author, do you have the option to just like, you certainly have the option not to like, get into the scraps, although it can be too tempting i'm sure but you know do you have the option of just like being completely offline and selling um, books
1: no you don't i mean this is the thing if you first of all you're unlikely at this point to get a book deal unless you already have a presence on social media mm-hmm. um it's i mean it's it it's still total happens, but no it's but it's true
0: right it like
1: and then you're told you're literally yeah. instructed in your little package that you get from your publisher mm-hmm. yeah if you don't have twitter or you're not you know if you're not participating in these communities then you
0: you need to start um but this is this is the thing you have to keep getting kind of rediscovered i find like and i have people i've had like professionally like very helpful things in my life happen from people being like i like your twitter like editors because that's what they're doing you know because even if some people know who you are not everybody does and you're being kind of constantly scouted and that's the the arena you know yeah
1: yeah and i mean you know there's like pitching contest tests take place on twitter mm-hmm. many many YA authors meet their agents on twitter at this mm-hmm. point so yeah it's it's not that you can't um abstain from social media and still write in this space but it's it's harder it's harder to do um and what is more common is for somebody to build an enormous following on social media And build, you know, all of their success from there. And then, yeah, if you want to, you can quit. Um, which actually allows us to segue into our question about John Green. Um, if you are ready to to move on to, I am ready, but I don't know who John Um,
0: Green is. We're gonna have to explain this one.
1: Yeah, this one. I'll I'll just I'll just you know take this one as you know the person with the grotesque amount of inside knowledge on this. So the question is, what is the party line on John Green these days? Also, Hunger Games slash Percy Jackson. Um, So basically, the Hunger Games and Percy Jackson and, um, you know, the Maze Runner novels by James Dashner, who incidentally, um, he was Me Too'd and dropped by his agent, but he's still very popular with teen readers. This kind of highlights the difference between the books that are being talked and fought about on why Twitter where adults dominate the conversation and the books that actual kids are sitting down to read when they sit down to read for pleasure. Um, so, you know that's an interesting distinction but as for john green if anybody who does, uh, doesn't know this john green was probably the most successful author to be writing at the peak of the sort of young adult fiction moment who wasn't writing about sparkly vampires um he wrote these sort of realistic contemporary novels about teenagers and their feelings he's probably most famous for having written the fault in our stars which was turned into a film starring ansel elgort um who was also Incidentally, I think since been me (laughs) would and um, the girl from Divergent. What's her name? Shailene Woodley. So um, John Green is an interesting case. He definitely saw the writing on the wall when it came to the sort of toxic dynamics that were starting to rule in the YA space, especially when it came to people trying to kind of connect young adult fiction writing to social justice Um, in, I want to say it might have been 2016 or, or thereabouts, Um, somebody on Tumblr basically insinuated that he writes books about teenagers and their feelings because he himself is some kind of um, pedophile, pedophile, (laughs) pedophile,
0: pedophile. I was was going to say, uh, I've forgotten what American accents sound like since living in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, I I think I know what she's saying. (laughs) I
1: I hope you enjoyed that. It will never happen again. Um, Sorry. Yeah, the the implication was that he writes about – he writes about teenagers and their feelings as a a means of getting close to teenage girls who he wants to have sex with. And this accusation went kind of viral on Tumblr. He responded to it saying basically, like, I really – wished that I was not being asked to respond to this. But since I am, no, I don't have, you know, I don't sexually abuse children. It's really messed up to allege even, you know, as a clout chasing exercise that I sexually abuse children. And this is symptomatic of a sort of tone that's emerged in this space where social justice language is being weaponized uh, in ways that I that I'm not comfortable with. Mm hmm. Um, the upshot of this actually interestingly is that at least two articles were written by young women saying that for John Green to deny these claims and to to chastise the person who falsely accused him of being like a child rapist, that he was being abusive um you know he was engaging in an abusive punchdown by. Trying to quote silence these young women who were accusing him. um It's an interesting, interesting exercise in what it's okay to say, even when you're defending yourself against you know a, a repulsive accusation. That yeah, I guess I guess
0: there's no there's and, no acceptable apology and there's no acceptable self defense, right?
1: Right. Sort of similar to what happened with Jess Clues, you know, because she, you know. Mm-hmm. She was tweeting caustically, I mean, in a way that's absolutely typical um, of the tone of the conversation happening in YA all the time. I mean, keep in mind, this is also the environment from which the widely applauded disgusting worms thread originated. Um, But because there was this perceived misdirection in terms of like, was she punching at somebody more oppressed than her? The, it it was considered an act of bigotry and sort of same thing with John Green defending himself against the allegations that he's like a pedophile um, because these allegations were being made supposedly by teenage girls defending himself against them was a, you know, a hideous abuse of power and he should be ashamed of himself. So um, John Green quit social media in 2018 and has not been back and. Um, I think that that was probably very wise on his part. And in the meantime, because he's not active on social media, I don't think that people are particularly talking about his books at this point. Um, I mean, he's you know made certainly enough money as an author that he can step back from the space. Um, he has not written another YA novel since the release in I want to say twenty seventeen of one called Turtles All the Way Down, um, which. All, not only was promoted on social media very sparingly, but um, they only, actually, I don't think they produced advanced reader copies, which is a sort of another sign that he was stepping back from allowing himself or his work to be part of the conversation that he'd already decided it was a kind of a toxic thing. I mean, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm speculating about his mindset here, but based on the comments he made, I think that that's sort of what we can surmise. Um, that said, I did Google him this morning um, just to see, you know, if anybody was still talking about his work. And he's still being included in roundups. Um, but the the one thing that I really enjoyed was um, an essay from, I think, a student at the University of Michigan, um, clearly a, a young-ish woman um, in a Michigan newspaper arguing that uh, John Green should be canceled. And it's it's insane that he hasn't already because he wrote this book about two teenagers who both have cancer and are both in love. And um, she took great exception to the fact that he invented uh, an experimental treatment for one of the teenagers cancer that was that wasn't going to save her life, but it was sort of prolonging her life. It was, you know, it was keeping her alive when she otherwise wouldn't have been. And um, the, the best line from this essay, arguing for the cancellation of John Green, was, I know this is a work of fiction. I know that Green is entitled to create any fantasy he would like, but does fantasy belong in a book about cancer?
0: Oh, dear. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) okay so that sounds that sounds like some fine oh all right I don't even know so some spaces this is
1: where the conversation
0: well I think that so I feel like um there are a few like maybe big picture questions that I, I maybe think we should do the slow attempted wrap up with but I wanted to first make sure that we have addressed Kat this is from one of the Questions we got. Do you have any juicy stories that haven't been shared on Twitter, generally (laughs) or specific to YA, I suppose? Um, What do you think? Because, I mean, I haven't shared Um, the story. Well, no, I have shared the story of the raccoon. There's so many raccoons. I I have raccoon stories that you don't know about, but let's stick with YA.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't have any good raccoon stories. Pretty much all of my juicy stories are in YA. Um, Let me see if I can sum up really crazy ones that, um, that are things that I had wanted to report on, um, but didn't because I couldn't verify them or it just wasn't the right time. Um, so one thing that happened was that when YA was undergoing its Me Too moment, which took the form of a bunch of allegations left in the comments on a school library journal blog. Um, you know, this is this is where they decided to center their me Too-ing. Um, one of the people who was canceled um, and, you know, she was dropped by her publisher. I think they stopped printing her book and she just completely disappeared. It was it was a woman. Um, this uh, author named Tristina Wright, who I believe was a bisexual, disabled author of like queer young adult sci fi Fiction. Um, And in the comments, where everybody was coming out of the woodwork to say, you know, uh, so and so approached me at a conference and was, you know, and was sexual with me in a way that made me uncomfortable. This is the comments thread that resulted in James Dashner also being canceled. A bunch of people anonymously turned up and started accusing her of, quote unquote, grooming readers at conventions. And it was a really, really Weird and, and honestly, like, horrible thing to see unfold. Um, you know, she tried to address the accusations. Um, she pointed out that she has very little contact one on one with her readers at all because she has a lot of trouble walking. Um, and when she goes to conventions, she spends a lot of time exhausted in her room, you know, because she has a uh, chronic illness. And keep in mind also that she didn't even know. What she'd been accused of, there were no names, there were no specifics. And similarly to the John Green thing, you know, the fact that she was denying it was
0: was (laughs) used as evidence that she wasn't sensitive. And people call these witch hunts, and people use that analogy well.
1: Oh, I know. What are they thinking? Um, And so, yeah, you know, she she was basically, uh, you know, pushed out, ostracized. And that was a weird thing, especially because... It seemed, if you had been observing the um, the dynamics in the community, like it was partially related to the fact that this woman, Tristina um, Wright, used to be a kind of a leading antagonist against other people's books. Um, she was a member of this sort of clique of writers that was often engaged in attempts to campaign against the work of problematic people. Um, but she'd sort of had a falling out with them. She had had a a little public scrap with one of the other key players, arguably more influential than her. And not that long after suddenly a bunch of people turned up anonymously Mm. accusing
0: her of sexual. Okay. So that's juicy. That's juicy.
1: Isn't that juicy? Yeah. You know, it goes to how, um, how stuff works in this space.
0: um, But I think that's really, no, but I think it's a good one because I think it really is this thing about like so much having to do with these kind of like internal power struggles, um, which gets it. So I think there are kind of maybe like two big-ish questions that this whole thing um, leaves us with here. And one is, um, and this comes from another one of our questions. um, So this is, do you think this is leading to the greater good of publishing. Now I think it's clear we don't but but more generally though I think um let's say that you you know like the social justice goals themselves is this even furthering them and I guess I have my doubts because it seems like as in other arenas there's a lot of um power playing, you know, alliances being kind of selective and cynical and you know, people wanting to get ahead and all of this. And is any of this, some of it might incidentally provide more diverse books. Some of it might not. Some of it might just reinforce the power of existing power players who are kind of good at being savvy, you know, like, I don't know. Is there any, is there any good coming of any of this or is it all just kind of, because it seems like from the perspective of like, I guess of just art and of like, Art and entertainment, and just providing like good reading um, aimed at young people. I guess it seems like having everything need to be like this didactic. I don't see how that could be good, but um, yeah,
1: yeah. I think you know, in terms of the, you know, this this marginalized hypothetical teen that everybody sort of raises the specter of it as as being the person who benefits from the continued narrowing of, of what's available in YA um, or, you know, moving it in the direction of, of books that promote the correct political values that promote social justice and, and, you know, in certain narrative forms. I don't think that that kid is aware of these conversations. I don't think they're reading those books. Um, you know, the, the kid who is reading to kind of escape, because they have a hard life. Um, What they're reading is stuff that is fun, that's accessible, that's entertaining. Um, And, you know, I think that this actually speaks to the difference between what's good for readers and what makes uh, people who hold already the power and the reins in the y space, the authors, the editors, the publishers feel good about themselves. um and what you see with regard to this is um a lot of like white agents and white editors will specifically and like ask, encourage, demand authors of color. To write about their identities, to write trauma-centered, identity-centered books, um, and this was something that I actually I, I did write about this for Refinery Twenty um, Nine. It ties into the whole own voices thing. Um, a lot of publishers imagine that they're doing something very good and very noble and important by publishing own voices. You know, it, and these are books about marginalized characters by authors who share those marginalizations. Um, But when I talked to actual authors from marginalized backgrounds, what many of them told me was, you know, I write to use my imagination. Like I'm not interested in writing a thinly veiled autobiography
0: for children about what a victim I am. Like,
1: That's so important. I think that's so
0: important because the question is like, what are the goals here? It's like for the, you know, the reader, but also like, are the creators themselves well-served by, you know, being pigeonholed in this way? Um, And just as like a professional sort of matter, you know, and it's, I think that you, you see this in all kinds of fields that, you know, people do not want to be, you know, hired simply as like representatives of whichever form of victimhood. Um, And, and that sentiment gets very much drowned out by like this sort of dominant narrative of like that that would be all that would matter um it's super interesting i mean so the other thing though and this this relates though is this question of like and this gets us back to the sort of why why a question like this notion of like the what the, what role i mean i feel like the this sort of meta question here is like what role do actual young people or the idea of young people have in all of this? Like why, you know, and I think, like, I guess in terms of like, I was just kind of like free associating a little, I was thinking of like Greta Thunberg and this idea that like young people are just better um, or, and also like about how young people, like they get it where it comes to like pronouns and they just get it in general. They get it when it comes to, you know, gun control, even though like in my high school we tried to, form a a gun control club that never quite (laughs) worked, but whatever, Um, you know, like this idea that young people are just like better and how, I guess that somehow connects to this idea that anything, any work from before 1950 is garbage. Um, Any person from before, I don't know, 1980, 1990, I don't know what it even is at this point is like less pure, you know, um oh my god sorry this is totally we we have to just like tie this in because it's so perfect. There was this article in the Times um the New York Times about that period underwear, right? The underwear for mm-hmm. for a period. Okay.
1: And yeah, I'm too old to think Okay, that's a well good that's idea. the thing. So so am I,
0: but the point <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> extra special information from um but you know like now you know so much about us but but the point is that the article was about exactly this it was saying that like the gen z um the gen zers get it you know obviously gen zers are not the people i shouldn't say obviously you never know but it's like grown possibly gen x women who've started this company um but it's but there's this whole line in it about how, like, the Gen Xers don't get it, you know, or the Millennials. Maybe I don't remember. I don't know where. I think old Millennials probably fall with Gen Xers on this. But anyway, because they just don't care about, like, the Earth. And all I could think, and I believe I even tweeted, was, like, something about, like, if you do your own laundry, you're probably, you're less likely to be, like, 12. And you may have different views on this, on this <laughs> matter. But it just seemed very much like... Um, about sort of the young people um, being just better. You know, they get it. They wear the, you know, reusable pads and tampons or whatever it is because they're just like a better group of people. Um, And everybody who, you know, doesn't want to do that and doesn't want to like do laundry a thousand times a week, one week of a month is canceled. Um, And this is about relatively young old people because if, you know, like if you're menopausal, I'm assuming this poses less of an issue. Um right. Yeah. Anyway, I know that that period underwear has nothing to do directly with YA, but I think this really is telling in terms of like um the discourse surrounding youth. And I think that explains a lot of like what's going on here in the sort of and the fetishization of youth, not as like beauty, although yeah. it is always that too, um, in a sort of unstated sense. But this like fetishization of the values projected onto um, the young people who will supposedly make everything better,
1: right? Well, I mean, it's not just that the young people are supposed to be better and more noble, um, but also that that youth itself is treated like a form of marginalization. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it was um, I think it was Liz Brunig, um, a writer for the New York Times, who m- made this observation that. A lot of the writers who engage in 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 the y a space in these sort of uglier forms of discourse, um that what they're doing is sort of hitching their apple wagon to the marginalization of teenage girls. You know, they market products, mm-hmm. they create products for teenage girls. Oh yeah, that and was
0: brilliant. Yeah. they are
1: basically, you know, hence they are teenage girls. <laughs> Same if you're marketing
0: the period underpants. I think. Yeah, I think exactly. Come an honorary. Uh, it's it's your honorary first period. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <Ever>. <laughs> and so then to attack yeah. them is basically to attack teenage girls, um, you know, because they've that they themselves are sort of avatars within the space for their teenage readers. But then, of course, what you see happen is if one of those teen readers steps out of line and questions the value of the product being created for them, and you saw this, we have discussed this too on the podcast Mm -hmm. with Jessa, but um, when a girl in college campaigned to not have Sarah Dessen, who is a teen romance writer to not have one of her books be on their required reading list where it's like you read one book, you know, it's like the, the freshman incoming book club or whatever, where you read one book that's supposed to be important. And then you talk about it. And she didn't want Sarah Dessen to be that book. And she said so in an interview about, I think it was more widely about these reading lists and the students who, you know, who throw their weight around to, you know, to try to influence what's on them. Um, she basically questioned the quality of this teen romance novel and the author suddenly, you know, wasn't her pal anymore. She went after her online. Um, you know, was like, I'm being bullied by this teenage
0: girl. Right. And, it, but the dynamic was, was supposed to good. be that the dynamic was supposed to be that this was like on behalf of teenagers that she was like, she was speaking for the teenagers, whereas the actual near teenager or teenager, I don't remember. Um, was not so I think what we need to do though is we need to talk about didn't somebody ask about our favorites in YA yeah yeah what is good what YA and um so I I know there was also a question about why are adults reading these books and why not you know people I'm just gonna say people can read what they feel like and if if it's YA so be it but let's recommend some Let's recommend some, unless you have more to say on the why, why people are reading what, because I don't know if I have anything deep on that.
1: I have a theory and it's, and it's pretty brief, um, which is that a lot of literary fiction, especially around the same time that why was getting big, a lot of literary fiction was getting maybe a little bit bleak. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. you were, it was, it was harder. To find stories with uplifting endings, um, even now, you know, I find that a lot of what's being lauded as like the greatest literary fiction will maybe be written beautifully, but it's not much of a story. Um, and so, depending on what you what you read for, and you know, I fully admit that I'm a a pretty lowbrow person. Like, I I want my writing to be of a certain sentence level literary quality, but if it's not an entertaining story, I really, really annoyed. Um, you know, I think that it, it's understandable why people would gravitate towards, you know, stories that are are more exciting and accessible, sort of, you know, in the same ways that, that young readers
0: gravitate towards those stories. Um, they're like, and isn't just entertainment generally, and I'm thinking about like pop music, life, you know, the life you lead at 17 becomes like, that's kind of, that's it. You know what I mean? Like a lot centers around being young, you know? And you can read one
1: of these books in like a couple hours, you know? And so there's, there's also that like, as if, if what you're doing is reading recreationally, there are certainly reasons why you might want to read YA. Um, I don't really read a lot of YA at this point. Um, I read more of it when I was writing it for probably obvious reasons. Um, But I will definitely recommend a few um, – there's a few authors whose work I thought was great. Um, I always really liked Jandy Nelson. Um, I think the book that of hers that I really appreciated most was I'll Give You the Sun. Um, it's like a story about teen artists. Uh, Lila Sales writes great YA. Um, Lee Dugo's fantasy series about the Grisha. I think it's called – I can't remember what it's called um but you know you can look that up is pretty good um and also in fantasy laney Taylor's Daughter of Smoke and Bone series was quite good so
0: I recommend those Sounds good I'm going to recommend what I remember liking as a young adult um that was sort of young that was young adult oriented um the Adrian Mole books by
1: oh, Sue
0: Townsend I always thought those were great um, I should say, unfortunately, I prior to my last uh, pre-pandemic vacation um, picked up like a a later book where Adrian Mole is a grown up, and it was like really bad. <laughs> but the ones where he's a teenager are great and really, really funny. And um, yeah, and they're also they're not own voices because they're about a boy but written by a woman. So, you know, just warning anybody who will find that a problem. <laughs> but, you know, um, but they're just great. I remember really liking those. And I also somehow feel like this urge to recommend Bridget Jones in this, like to read Bridget Jones, like in that realm, even though it's not about anybody being particularly young, it somehow feels of a piece. I don't know. Is that like, British thing or like but just the light aspect of it. Yeah. It's not YA. Yeah. But well and, uh, I guess Jessica Christmas would have we could have debated whether Bridget Jones is YA because as we discussed with her, um Sally Rooney's normal people is maybe YA, which I liked. So as I mentioned on that podcast, I did like normal people, so that's the other YA I will recommend I think it just
1: goes to show that you know like all categories of of books YA is not easy to pin down and the fact that it is YA doesn't necessarily say anything about its quality as a story and maybe that's you know maybe that's for the best it means more books for everybody
0: that sounds like a good a good place to end more books for everybody sounds like a good plan. Yeah. A wholesome note.
1: And on that wholesome <laughs> note, um, thank you so much for joining us here on Feminine Chaos. You can subscribe to this podcast at Patreon. It's http colon slash slash patreon.com slash Feminine Chaos. Um, and yeah, we would love to have your support. Thank you for joining. Thank you Chaos. so much.
0: <laughs> Until next time. Bye. Bye.